Hello, free thinkers. I'm Mickey Z, and I welcome you to Post Woke, the New York City-based podcast where we practice intellectual self-defense. It all began several years ago with a Facebook post, which basically asked, where can you buy cardboard poles for protest signs? The original poster clarified that they would be willing to compromise their principles in order to shop at a chain store like Home Depot, Staples, or Target, because after all, it's for a good cause. Now let's break this down into three parts in the name of breaking down so-called activism. Number one, cardboard poles for signs. This is what today's revolutionaries have been reduced to. If it wasn't bad enough that they still adhere to the sign-holding model of dissent, the state rubs it in their face by arbitrarily outlawing the use of anything more dangerous than hollow cardboard poles to hold up their futile, ineffectual messages. Yeah, if you go to a protest, you will be surrounded by uniformed, heavily militarized men who would apparently feel threatened if your colorful, handmade, and oh-so-radical puppet was being held aloft via a thin wood pole. In the name of challenging power, we apply and pay for a permit to stand in designated free speech zones, clinging to our non-threatening cardboard signs stapled to non-threatening cardboard poles. The reality is obvious, should we choose to recognize it. What we call activism is actually a crucial component in maintaining the status quo. Number two, compromising principles. Our allegedly principled refusal to patronize businesses we perceive as being distasteful is virtue signaling in its purest form. Nothing is accomplished by boycotting staples, just as nothing would be accomplished by purchasing cardboard protest poles at Home Depot. Number three, it's for a good cause. Define good cause. If it has anything to do with modern activism, please rethink that definition. However, let's say you encounter a homeless woman outside Target and she tells you she's in urgent need of personal supplies. Putting aside your alleged radical grudge against the store to buy this woman what she needs? Yeah, I think we can all agree. Good cause. I've been offering input and advice like this for many years, and I've learned the hard way that way too many people imply that unless a critic expounds a specific strategy for change, their opinion is nothing more than worthless negativity. This reaction, of course, misses the essential role critical analysis plays in a society where problems and their causes are so cleverly disguised. When discussing the future, the first step is usually an identification and demystification of the past and present. Besides, of what value would my alleged solutions be while we are still in the midst of myriad global crises? I'd like to imagine that if we began detaching ourselves from this system, we would create a space in which we could recognize paths and options that are currently invisible to us. Until we collectively undertake some introspection and soul-searching, our alleged solutions are worth even less than the non-threatening cardboard they're printed on. 
and I will be right back to talk more about the failures of the left with my guest, Christian Parenti. Christian Parenti is professor of economics at John Jay College, City University of New York. He is also the author of several books, and as a journalist, he has reported extensively from Afghanistan, Iraq, and various parts of Africa, Asia, and Latin America for The Nation, Fortune, The London Review of Books, The New York Times, and other publications. I know his father, the legendary Michael Parenti, but this is the first time chatting with Christian. The catalyst for our conversation is an article he wrote for The Gray Zone in late March. It's called How the Organized Left Got COVID Wrong, Learned to Love Lockdowns, and Lost Its Mind, an Autopsy. If you check the show notes, you will find a link to that article. This article contains 129 endnotes, but I'll share just one excerpt for starters. Christian writes, For two years, the left has championed policies of surveillance and exclusion in the form of punitive vaccine mandates, invasive vaccine passports, socially destructive lockdowns, and radically unaccountable censorship by large media and technology corporations. For the entire pandemic, leftists and liberals call them the lockdown left, cheered on unprecedented levels of repression aimed primarily at the working class, those who could not afford private schools and could not comfortably telecommute from second homes. So let's welcome the author of that article to Post Woke. I'm back with Christian Parenti. Christian, I appreciate you making time to talk and welcome to Post Woke. Thank you very much. Um, Well, we live in a time now when Antifa supports a policy of show me your papers, Big Pharma are the good guys to the social justice crowd, defending free speech makes you a Nazi, and to use your words, lockdowns and censorship are treated as purely technical, apolitical interventions. So I ask you, what the hell happened? Well, I think what happened is that uh, there, that the whole pandemic got politicized because of the election and Trump derangement syndrome, you know, was in the saddle. And that part of what the madness of the sort of activist or movement left reveals is just how beholden ultimately the left is to the Democratic Party and its messaging. And so in the article, I mentioned, described the 1976 swine flu outbreak in which it starts with some soldiers at Fort Detrick getting sick and one of them dying and then there's a pandemic declared and 20 a vaccine is created and 20 percent of the U.S. population is vaccinated including President Ford and then it becomes clear that the vaccine is causing uh, Guillain-Barre syndrome or Guillain-Barre I forget how you pronounce it uh, which is you know an autoimmune disease that can paralyze and even kill and and so the whole swine flu vaccination campaign is suspended. And so from that point on, you, you really see this symbiotic relationship between the regulators and big pharma in which the regulators, you know, the CDC and NIH, FDA are all hyping up the possibility of pandemics anytime a new infectious disease comes along. 
And prior to the election where Trump was running for re-election, there was enough critical thinking capacity in the journalistic class and the political class that these moral panics never really took off. But what was different this time around was that it got sucked up into the tornado of the election. And mm. so it was like it became clear that the Democrats felt that, okay, this time we've got them. This is the issue from, you know, from the Hollywood access tape on. They're always crying wolf, you know, thinking they've got him. He's overstepped. But they're like, this time we've got him. He is not capable of handling this. And Trump, you know, gave $8 billion to Project Warp Speed to get the mRNA virus uh, vaccines produced quickly. But other than that, he, he was pretty incompetent. I mean, he, um, yeah. and as I describe in the article, his whole team kind of got overwhelmed by the messaging coming from Fauci and Burks. So the White House COVID task force, um, Trump didn't like it, but didn't shut it down. He had the power to do that. And it seems that like Jared Kushner got a little freaked out by the kinds of headlines that were being generated. And so that is part of what happened too. that. Like, you know, it was clear that Trump didn't really have a plan for this. Democrats were, you know, running with, with the pandemic as a political issue, but the Republicans also politicized the pandemic because they thought, okay, we can, you know, we can run on this. We'll, we'll own the, the reopening. And I think that they, they thought genuinely that the, the virus was going to burn out quicker than it did. And so in late March, that's when the mid late March, that's when it really becomes politicized. Uh, you know, the, the, the definitive moment is when Trump says we want to see the economy reopened by April, by Easter. Yes. And the, the key thing is that it's the governors that are pursuing these lockdowns. There's limited federal lockdowns, right? You know, we've got you know masking mandate on airline travel from the federal government. But most of these lockdowns are state by state. So it's like the White House task force is in classic moral panic style, like go back, read Stan Cohen's um, Folk Devils and Moral Panics, where it's like this symbiotic kind of feedback loop between the press and the political class. And that's what's going on in April and March. And um, it, the governor's locked down. So then Trump comes out, says we want to reopen. At that time, also DeVos family related um, kind of hard right foundations start helping to kind of astroturf fund some of these um, protests at state house capitals. They're also, I mean, they're, they're both organic, um, you know, small business people who, who want to reopen their hair salons, et cetera. Mm -hmm. but, and, but there's also support from the kind of donors network type. And so then there's the spectacle of these hard right, you know, one percenters with their guns, three percenters, whatever they call, you know, oath keeper types. Uh, at these state capitals, and that just is like red meat to the to the left, right? So it's like, oh my God, these these fascists are are uh, are you know owning the reopening. Our side is owning the lockdowns, and it's just like off to the races. There's absolutely <laughs> no room whatsoever to consider new evidence as it comes in. There's no room politically to reconsider positions taken in March 2020, and the activist movement left has, by and large, remained stuck in March 2020. The good news, from my point of view, 
in terms of reaction to this article is that the main criticism I'm hearing is that people are saying, well, that's, that, that's, you know, that's not really the case. The left didn't really take all these positions. And that's straight up bullshit. I don't know if you allow swearing on your podcast. No, absolutely. You absolutely. I mean, that yeah. is total bullshit. But I'm like, that's great. If that's what, if that's your move now is to deny that, yeah. that you all flipped out about this, great. I mean, that, that's, that seems like progress to me. But yeah, that's what happened, you know? And yeah, I had a, I had a, I mean, an activist, a, a founding member of like a huge national poor people's organization write to me about how he had been exiled from every left space in the Northern California town he lived in because he worked with homeless people and he refused to quarantine. It's so all the, the anarchist bookstores, the DSA run coffee shop, like the entire spectrum of whatever you want to call it, the movement left, the left banished this guy. You know, I mean, that kind of stuff um, went on and still goes on. I, you know. Yeah, it seems uh, like yeah, I, I, I really. I, I, yeah, go on. Go ahead, go ahead. I didn't want to cut you off. Go ahead. I mean, it's still, I mean, I recently, recently, some like, you know, well meaning lefty journalists, there was some invitation. So I was like, you know, like asking that everybody be vaccinated to go to some party. I mean, this kind of stuff. It's like, what, what, it, like, like, no one has taken them more than wait, wait a minute. The vaccines don't stop transmission. They yeah. don't stop infection. What? I mean, everyone's acting like herd immunity can be still lefties are acting like herd immunity can be achieved through vaccination and herd immunity can't be achieved with these coronaviruses, you know, and we've Absolutely. got these previously these four novel coronaviruses. Now this will be the fifth, right? And they mutate too quickly. They can't be driven to extinction the way, for example, polio um, and other diseases that aren't uh, viruses that, that, or, or that don't mutate as quickly as these coronaviruses. Um, yeah. 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 Something like polio be. doesn't have an animal reservoir. Like when people use, when people use examples like, well, we eradicated polio or smallpox, they're completely different diseases. But I want to, I want to first say I totally and, and appreciate they don't, they don't mutate. I, I think one of the key yeah. differences is that they just don't mutate with yeah. the same speed that, that these uh, coronaviruses do. So, but everyone's acting like if everyone would just submit, if you just shut up and submit and keep taking these vaccines and these boosters, then we would, we would wipe this disease out. There's no basis for that claim in, I, in I any fully, kind of scientific evidence. I fully concur. And, and I, I totally appreciate your perspective because I, I adhere oh. to the Trump derangement syndrome um, philosophy in the sense that anything that he or his uh, quote unquote deplorables could support, by definition, the left is knee jerk reacted, said we have to do the opposite. And then the more people, some people on the left said to them, what are you doing? Um, and they just dug in their heels even deeper in the sense that they committed to these movements and these stances. And many of them are still, in fact, are more entrenched now than even a year and a half ago. And when I read your article, I mean, I so deeply related to it as someone, I'm born and raised in New York. I've been part of activist movements here all the way up to Occupy. And, you know, you over the years, you notice that in any group, there's going to be some sense of a hive mind, some sense of groupthink, even a little bit of thought policing going on as to how you describe stuff. But this has it has taken those tendencies and taken them to the point where I don't think I could have foreseen this. I, like, for yeah. example, bar, barring a guy who helps homeless people from the anarchist bookstore, like that yeah. sounds almost like a Saturday Night Live skit. Yeah. 
Yeah. No, it is. It's really, it's really crazy. I mean, so part and part of what happened in all this was, you know, on the left, broadly defined side of it was a weaponization of solidarity and a weaponization of care. You yes. were supposed to do all this, you know, to show your concern for others. That's a very noble sentiment, you know. I agree. Um, and that's part of why people did it because they were like, hey, it's not that big a deal for me to do this little thing to show concern. You know, but what happened in that like commendable emotional reaction was that thinking went out the window, you know, and it was just like, you know, you weren't allowed to say, but wait a minute, does masking work? You know, um, are there, you know, what is the fatality rate of this disease among children? What are the negative consequences of masking and of online learning for young kids? You know, what are other possibilities that we could do here? Okay. If there are teachers who have comorbidities and you know have really legitimate reasons not to be in the classroom, then you know they're protecting those people should be a priority, but not at the expense of like closing down public schools. Uh, you know, yeah, I concur. Yeah, it's it's it it's mind blowing. And the questions you just asked, the questions you just proposed, had they been asked particularly in 2020, but even to some degree now, would get would provoke the response of like, oh, you. What you must be a Trump voter. It's like yeah. simply asking, is this harming children in a way that's less palpable than a pandemic? Is a is a Trumpian question, and mm -hmm. that shuts down all nuance and debate. Or also, I mean, I had this happen. Um, you know, someone saying um, raising these questions. Someone said, "You're trying to kill my children's uh. grandparents." You know, and this is from an intelligent guy. I was just like, "Wow." Yeah, so you're either you're you're a Trumpian or you're trying to kill people. No, it, it was awful. And yeah, and I, I I agree with you. I mean, I've never seen anything like this. You know, I mean, I'm a child of the Cold War era. I remember, like, as I'm sure you do, like the height of the Cold War kind of groupthink and self policing and yes. knee jerk anti communism. This feels like that plus, like even beyond that, in terms yeah. of the level of hysteria and and um. And policing, like the vigilantism that that yes. came out around this, is incredible. Pe people began to just mandate themselves, even even when even before they were mandates, they were doing it. Even after some of the mandates were lifted, there here in New York, I, I don't know. Are you are you in New York right now? Right now, I'm in New England. But okay, so like yeah. walking around New York, people are still driving alone in cars with masks on, walking yeah. down the street double masks. Like they'll they'll mandate themselves, and then they will, as you said, this vigilantism of reporting other people as being um, dangerous or wanting to kill grandparents. It's it's it's. I I would have to assume because to use your uh, Cold War analogy that. One of the primary differences is that the tactics, like the propaganda tactics, are are enduring for a century, but the methods by which they can transmit them, the speed at which they can transmit them, and now um, artificial intelligence, it's it's we're watching this grand social experiment of how quickly you can get people to literally behave against their own interests and then hate literally yeah. like hate family members friends and so on who even ask a question like the questions you 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 uh, proposed before yeah oh yeah no, i mean so some of the stuff like you know stuff i didn't put in the article just like the levels of like kind of vigilantism i mean we know somebody who uh a nurse in southern Vermont who she gave birth. She got COVID while she was, you know, going into labor. They immediately take her child 
from her, and they don't let her see her child for 10 days. Oh, her pediatrician was like, that's insane because the kid was exposed to COVID, you know, uh, yeah. in, in, in utero. I mean, this kind of nonsense. And then, but they would also, then they would allow her husband who tested positive or visited her to then also visit the kids. But th this kind of like vicious insanity, taking a child, a newborn child from a mother for 10 days in the name of like public health. Um, in New York, they attempted, New York City, they attempted for a while, I think this was the case for a couple of weeks at least, women giving birth could not have anyone there with them. And I think that the, the, nursing, the nursing staff were just like, yeah, that's, uh, that's impossible, that's nonsense, we're not gonna do that. Good. I mean, uh, yeah. on and on and on and on, you know, it's just. Um, yeah, the protocols that were imposed upon the hospitals by the CARES Act handcuffed them because they had, if they did certain things and they got the, the financial remuneration and the doctors and nurses, if they spoke up, could lose their license. And that, those yeah. laws, those laws are still, there's one in California now they're trying to pass. And I mm -hmm. interviewed last week, a doctor from Maine who had her license suspended because Marilyn she's, Ness. Yeah. Marilyn, Marilyn yeah. Ness. Yeah. And yeah. she's, cause she spoke out and, and it's it, like you said, the, the, it goes beyond just being heavily conditioned or programmed and parroting what you're hearing when it break when it gets into that vigilantism that that then gets into almost a form of cruelty like telling yeah. a, a new mother she cannot see her child and yeah. so 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 let me segue into something like where um looking at it a little bit from the left angle but just in general like what what's next i mean do people who say identify as leftists do they slowly return to traditional leftist roots or is the term left i mean in some ways you could say it's always been problematic because i could think 10 15 years ago i might be giving a talk somewhere and people would use the word left to describe anyone from hillary clinton to your dad and so the like the, does this word do we need new labels do right and left mean anything anymore so well, like where, yeah, where I mean, do you I see this going I don't think that the tradition of left and right can be swept away so easily. And that, um, you know, I mean, it, that there's a, there's a risk in um, not fighting for the kind of, you know, the space that is the left. And the risk is that, you know, parts of the left get swept up with parts of the right. And in the end, you know, the right wins and the left just gets devoured. But I mean, I think there is, you know, in terms of labels, because unfortunately we do need names for things, but I think, you know, there's a populist left emerging as well. And it's a minority. It doesn't have any organizational base, but, you know, it's, it's a current of attitude. I mean, it's, you know, uh, Crystal and Sagar, their podcast, their show embodies this, uh, Rising embodies this, you know, um, this kind of, a kind of left that wants to get back to basics and have a broad appeal and have a class politics, not exclusively class politics, not to dismiss the legitimate elements of identity politics, but to really center the politics on the universalizing class demands and on the methods of class struggle. And, and, and there's a kind of part of this populist left, you know, also wants to reach out to people who have right wing ideas, right? not to right-wing organizations per se, but recognizing that, look, you know, that, that there are a lot of people, that the majority of people in this country, regardless of what they think, that their real material interests are 
lie, lie in a working class struggle against the 1%, right? Against mm -hmm. the tyranny of the capitalist class. And that there is, there are a lot of people who might have, you know, illiberal attitudes about, uh, you know, this, that, or the other thing, but who can be brought around on all, any number of issues if they are reached out to with respect and if they're listened to and if there's, you know, a common platform around material self-interest in, into which they can, you know, come and participate and, and struggle for, for better economic conditions. So I still hold out hope for a broadening and expansion of, of, I guess, for lack of a better term, what I would call the populist left. And so it's a kind of an emerging thing. And so, yeah, I mean, I feel like the, the danger of like dispensing with left-right descriptions is that we can, um, it could get, things could get quite confused and, and that elements of the left could, could be, you know, just easily manipulated into a kind of red-brown situation where, you know, we know how that, how that worked out. Yeah. All, all the elements, elements of the left that, that, you know, instrument for instrumentalist reasons sided with, you know, what became fascism, they all got liquidated. You know, and that so I would be very cautious about about the you know the desire to sort of make common to jump into bed with the right basically. But that said, when you know when right wing politicians propose rational legislation, I'm totally supporting them. Likewise. You know? Yeah. You know? And when, when left wing like I mean all of this insane legislation in California, which is slowly but surely being defeated, except for this one that you just mentioned, which would empower you know, the medical boards to go after doctors in a more systematic fashion. That one's alive and well. But the other, like the bill that was going to lower the age of, of, of needing parental consent to get vaccines to 12 years old, like that's been shot down. And, you know, all this stuff has been proposed by liberal Democrats and the resistance has come from Republicans. So I've got no problem with, you know, supporting um, Republicans when they, when they do stuff like that and working with uh, Republicans against excessive, crazy COVID um, politics. I mean, I'm, I, think, I think leftists should be prepared to work with people who identify, you know, however, all sorts of political identifications, but be clear that it's, you got to work on, you know, what, whatever you consider to be the core left issues. And I consider them to be around economic redistribution empowerment of the working class and you know i mean class struggle against these oligarchs right this this one percent that is running our society global society into the ditch via captured agencies and you know the the increasing degradation of everyday life in the environment yeah well well said i mean i'm i'm sitting here just nodding my head agreeing that the, exactly the, the irony is that the despite this um what looks like a public divide that the working class uh, issues are some something that truly does unite us and perhaps perhaps people on the right will call them different things but that's definitely a point where we can connect and I do find just from a personal level that since the the whole lockdown situation happened that when I if I do go to any rallies here in New York or interact online that I am connecting in a positive way with people that prior to this pandemic, I probably 
wouldn't have even had an opportunity to interact with them. And I'm finding sometimes uh, someone might friend me on Facebook and I look at their wall and I'm, sometimes I'm like, wow, I really disagree with this that they just posted. But then I look at other stuff that they're talking about, the nuance, the context, and I'm like, oh, I can find some common ground with them though. And I'm not going to throw the baby out with the bathwater. This mm -hmm. is, these are conversations we can have that ironically were opened up by a time of incredible division. And I agree with you, like the, the, we really, really need to unite when you consider what we're facing in terms of economic control, the World Economic Forum, the so-called the Great Reset. Like we are, our issues are, are absolutely um, unifying if we yeah. allow them, if we yeah. allow them to and, be. And, and also civil liberties, you know, I mean, another argument, line of argument in the article, which is a very long article, right, is about the left's role in establishing civil liberties. The, the left's abandonment of civil liberties, free speech, freedom of assembly, that's all really, really bad. And, um, you know, uh, it's, it's very often right-wingers who these days are more supportive of that. And, you know, I'm not going to become a right-winger because right-wingers are colonizing a formerly left-wing issue, but I am, you know, I'm going to maintain my position as a leftist, but I'm totally going to work with whoever is prepared to defend civil liberties. You know, if we don't have freedom of speech and freedom of assembly, there's no way for there to be any kind of a working class movement. But yeah, it's, you know, the other, the problem with the left is that it has been colonized by foundations. That's really, I think, the heart of the problem. The foundations starting in the 60s really just start moving in and investing in uh, organizations that have professional staff and serve to collect and kind of tame activists and organic intellectuals who arise out of the working class and and then through these organizations to pursue irrelevant fragmented little struggles and keep everybody competing for foundation funding so that's a huge problem on the left and and the decline of unions also through their you know bureaucracy and and you know, corruption and all that. I mean, I say that as someone who's, who's you know, pro-union and a union member, but you've got to admit there, there are problems. Yeah, um, they, they've caused, they certainly caused, um, brought upon themselves some of the, uh, the attacks that they have uh, yeah. endured without a doubt. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, a buddy of mine out in Michigan who worked with SEIU, I mean, he just told me his old, his old local, it's like, it's been trustee for the third time in 10 years. You know, they just keep putting in like these time servers, these ass kissers who aren't the best organizers, but they kiss ass with the, the top leadership at SEIU. And then lo and behold, that person turns out to be, you know, corrupt. And so they got to trustee the local again. So I mean, <laughs> not, not, you know, that's an example. That's a self-inflicted wound is what I'm saying. Yeah, um, exactly. And you know, I had, I had a, a kind of disturbing epiphany where in the in western massachusetts in the mountains western massachusetts where my wife and i live you know i teach down in new york i keep a foot in new york for work but there was a little like a kind of movement in our in our town around these towns to push back against the local health boards you know these kind of these volunteer health boards that just went like like apeshit when they <laughs> had a chance to shine you know and they're like start imposing rules and, and, they, and they were just sort of like throwing their weight around and some of the local merchants, people are like, well, wait a minute, upon what authority are you um, in, use, enforcing mask mandates? And it was, you know, a bunch of other stuff. And, and people, you know, and this closing of schools locally. And so there were a couple of meetings, and I went to a couple of these, 
And at one of them, I realized, you know, the first one, I, I realized, I was like, wow, you know, this is the only meeting that I have been in as an activist where the majority of people do not have BAs. And I mean, I haven't, you know, always been super active, but I've been pretty politically active throughout various periods of my life. And, you know, Central American solidarity, um, okay. anti-nuke stuff up here in, in southern New England, I mean, in southern Vermont where I'm from, uh, anti-gentrification struggle in the Mission District in the 90s when I lived there. And, you know, in all of these movements, the majority of people had BAs, even the anti-gentrification struggle in the Mission District. It was, even though there was a, you know, considerable working class element in that movement, the majority of people had BAs. And okay, frequently they were like, you know, from working class immigrant backgrounds, but they were like, they had then gone on and got their BA and were, you know, nonprofit professionals or whatever. And just, you know, just an obvious point occurred to me, which was like, wow, I mean, I've been to, as a journalist and, you know, foreign reporter covered plenty of political left political movements where, you know, the majority of people were, you know, peasants and, and, uh, yeah. workers who had didn't even finish primary school but to participate as an american in my own society i realized wow this is the first time i have been involved in a movement that's actually populated by the working class and then all how did, these that, other how did movements, that feel how did that feel having when you had that epiphany well, it felt i mean it was it was great to be with all these people doing that but it it was like kind of like uh it was a demoralizing realization. I was like, yeah. God, I mean, this is what this is what the left has become. It's just become a collection of middle class professionals. Yes. You know, and that's utterly hopeless. I mean, that I mean, that is like that class can't do it for the world, right? I mean, the working class has to unite and wage its own struggles, right? And so, use its own voice. Like when you just described that moment in the meeting, I was torn between two emotions. One, just absolute joy that that exists. Yes. And then secondly, I just thought of, think of how many missed opportunities over the past X amount of decades by that class stratification within the, the so-called left, because the people who are on the ground, whether, like you said, it could be peasants in Central America, it could be anyone without a degree. I don't have a degree in, in, in the USA quite often this credentialism kicks in and the way you described it before where the foundations took over the left it's almost like a, a twisted version of agency capture where they just realized that they could use the same slogans and present a certain way but but beneath it they were just kind of business as usual yeah yep wow. yeah it's um but you, yeah that's precisely what it was it was exhilarating great and then also kind of like wow just like <sighs> That's that's what it's come to. The left is really just a kind of like a bunch of middle class people. Well, and I appreciate you writing that article, though, because I feel like we need more people like you pointing this out. I would imagine you took some shit for it. Uh, I gather on Twitter, yeah, being denounced, but I don't. I don't look at Twitter. It's just like, but, um, yeah. you know, it's interesting. I mean, I, um, you know, if I if I looked at Twitter, then I'd probably get pissed off. I mean, like, look at these, you know, unscrupulous liars, uh, obviously didn't read the piece or this or that. I mean, I, I, I look at Twitter occasionally, but I, I frequently am embarrassed by even what I see on the pages of people who I respect, because there's something about the form of the thing that I think turns people into idiots. I guess writing in 140 or 240 characters, as a friend of mine said, 
early on. So why would you want to do that? That's like, that's how toddlers talk, you know? Like, <laughs> but, that's a kind of really, really obvious point that a toddler yeah. would make for that matter. Yeah. yeah. It, it's, I agree with you. I, I was, I was, uh, interview getting interviewed by Cindy Sheehan the other day and we had we were we were discussing the left and I said to her sometimes when I watch what the left is doing I feel secondhand embarrassed and she said oh I use the term embarrassed embarrassment in adjacent and it's kind of what you just said it's just like you, you go on Twitter and you find yourself just cringing like no I really like this person and I've read their book and and they they I learned from them and oh my god look what they're saying right now yeah. in 280 characters and it is it is this bizarre are um, embarrassment that yeah. sometimes I have to, I draw I find myself drawn over just to look. I don't know what the the human um, instinct is to look and be secondhand embarrassed, but I have to own up to it. Yeah. I occasionally do it. Yeah, but so in terms of the reaction, you know, so I gather I'm getting a lot of shit on Twitter, but um, no, only one person has written to me with a hostile email. But I got more email from this piece than anything I've ever written by far, and mostly from lefties who are like. You know, thank you for writing this. I, I, yes, this has been the last yes. few years have been crazy. Like, I mean, often with also like heartbreaking stories of like, you know, one woman wrote about like losing her best friend because her best friend basically went completely nuts and was like called her in a panic and was like, oh my god, my neighbors were outside, you know, uh, uh, socializing without masks on their stoop. It's dangerous for me to walk. Like, like whoa, wow. and the woman called the cops. And so the woman who wrote to me was like, you know, she's like, what are you doing? You can't call the cops on your working class immigrant neighbors. Like, what is wrong with you? Get a grip, right? Stories like that. Um, lots of people have, have been very frustrated. Lots of people who identify as, as, you know, with the left or have, you know, like left wing politics have, have been very upset by this and have just been isolated and don't feel that they've had have any space to speak out. So... I think that's changing that people are people are speaking out and feel that they have the room to speak out and you know and I think like I said in the beginning I think it's good that that a lot of leftists are like wait a minute we, this wasn't our position we didn't overreact it's like yes you did you all went completely out of your minds but if you want to deny that and move on and like take a rational position against lockdowns and all this stuff that's great welcome yeah. aboard solidarity absolutely yeah it's so, so but basically what you're implying is that they recognize either consciously or subconsciously that they fucked up so they're just basically yeah. almost pulling a trump where i never said that and yeah. i never did that and and actually i didn't think of it before but as you're saying it i'm like that yeah that is a sign of progress because if they're abandoning these horrific stances our egos would have to just be squashed and say, we don't need to point out to them that they're currently lying to themselves right now. What we need to do is say, cool, more people who are ready to work together and have a more just society. Yeah. And I, for that, that that's what I felt. And let me clarify to the listeners, because I will put your, a link to your article in the show notes, but this article is long, as you said, um, there's 129 endnotes. You offer copious evidence for everything you say you it, this isn't just a, a a mindless like new york post editorial rant about i don't like this therefore it sucks you you lay out why these stances are irrational and have no scientific evidence and i urge people to to work through it because it offered me when i read it there, there was this sense of hope that yeah this he just laid it all out with footnotes and it it articulates the point that a lot of people have been trying to make for two years. And I'm hoping then 
the more it's read, the more it's shared, that people, it can begin to sort of like melt the ice that, that we've been stuck in for a couple of years here. And I, I just, that's what, from, as soon as I read it, I was like, I got to find a way to contact you because I just wanted you to come on and talk about it because I feel like it was the, um, the right article at the right time. Thank you. I mean, I wish I, other things got in the way. I wish I'd written it earlier, but yeah, I'm glad to hear that. I mean, and I've, I mean, what, I've had one, one person wrote to me and said, you know what, this changed my mind. And I've, wow. been, I've been arguing the wrong position for two years. That's pretty big. When does that happen? People are like change their minds <laughs> was, based on evidence. I know? was just about to say to you, can you count on the fingers of one hand how many times <laughs> someone's messaged you for, for all your books and all the stuff you've done and said, you know what, dude, you changed my mind. I mean, that yeah. is congratulations. <laughs> Let me just say that publicly. That is fantastic. And I don't, I'm, I'm not surprised because of the way you laid out the article. You have a very clear way of writing it. You have a, an obvious point of view and, and a strong voice, but the way it's broken down into sections based on each point that you deal with. And then, like I said, when the, when the read, when the listeners read it, when they scroll down to the bottom, if they have any questions like, Oh, where did he get this? Well, guess what? There's a link there showing you precisely where he got it. And to me, that's exactly what we need right now. We need, we need clear um, opinions with, with easily verifiable evidence. And again, to, to, toward that end, your article is, is a giant step in that direction and, and provided me with some optimism and hope. Great. And a few, I'm, and a few, and a few, smir a few smirks too. I mean, I had some fun at points in there too, because I've been trying to navigate the left myself in these times where I've become exasper exasperated and uh, I don't mind them getting a few digs, a few well-deserved digs. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, yeah. But, you know, and I guess one other thing that's, uh, I think that's an important, you know, important to, or maybe helpful in, in the argument in trying to sway people is like to admit, say like, you know, Hey, I was, I was there. You know, in the beginning, I was like a lunatic too. I was washing my groceries. I was scolding my mother for not taking this more seriously. And, you know, but it's like as the new evidence came in, that it's precisely because I was freaked out that I was like eager to find out, well, what, what is the real fatality rate? You know, and it's yes. like, so it's like if people are late to that, that's fine. But it's like, I think there's, it's understandable why a lot of people were terrified. But it's like, we got, got to move beyond that. You know, I agree, and I and I and I will say publicly also. In the beginning, I had the same initial response as you, in the sense of like, I don't know what's going on. I consider myself to be a prudent person, so therefore, I'm going to step back and take, you know, respect these so-called mitigation tactics until I've educated myself. And I was definitely on the hyper cautious end of things for a little while until to use your exact phrase until I learned more and and uh, I have no shame in that at all I think that I, if anything I think that's a rational response yeah. it's, pr proceed with caution until you know more and then yeah. and, and it, but if anything here two guys having this conversation saying to people there's no shame in in having felt fear any time over the last two years right. but like, but the evidence is all out there now you have it condensed into one article people can go to other sources so therefore the evidence is out there get the get that information and yeah. the fear will begin to melt away if anything yeah. it'll be replaced with rage yeah but the fauci's and all of them lying to us for two years it's it, and that that that's a way more motivating um emotion to get yeah. us so let's time to take some action yeah you know another thing uh, that something that I've, I've noticed in all this is that um, in the pathologizing of any dissent, one thing it, that makes it very hard for people like you and me to, to argue is that 
if you know if you know any details, that becomes suspect. It's like proof that you've gone down a rabbit hole. Yeah. And and I I think naming that is important because people feel this. They're gonna be like, you know, you're gonna get in conversations and arguments with people, and they're gonna be like, well, what what are you like? Where are you getting all this? Like that's weird that you know this much. And I mean, I think you just got to push through that. But um, that's that's a big phenomenon in terms of this policing. And I, and I notice, I think that that's a that's a, a problem we all have to be kind of self conscious of. You just got to feel like, oh wow, I sound crazy because <laughs> I know things that uh, you know my comrades on the erstwhile left are not allowed to consider. And so if you even if this this knowledge becomes suspect, if you if you know too much about like the lab leak theory, if you read the full Vanity Fair article, I had three different left intellectuals tell me they weren't going to read that article. Wow. Basically. Wow. I mean, yeah, I mean, and this whole guilt by association thing, that's another thing that's gone haywire in this moment and also with the war in Ukraine where people just like, you know, refuse to consider arguments because they come out of this, you know, the right, you know, I mean, I, uh, you know, I mean, Tucker Carlson has been very anti-war. He's one of the only anti-war voices. And I, you know, made the mistake of telling some friends, I was like, oh, you should, I think you should watch this one Tucker Carlson episode. He lays out, like, the case against the, the Ukrainian war. And my friends weren't, like, they didn't watch it and then come back at me with, like, he's wrong because of this, that, and the other thing. Guys, typical, you know, full shit, blah, blah, blah. Instead, they was like, I'm not going to watch it because it's Tucker Carlson. It's like, I understand. I, I get I get the critique of Tucker Carlson. He's, he's a xenophobe, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But like, but he happens to be correct in his opposition to you know he was he was good on um, you know opposing the vaccine mandates, and he's been good on the Ukrainian war. I, and too many I, leftists are just like I, I will not consider the content of his arguments because of who he is. It's like that's totally anti-intellectual and ridiculous. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm really glad you brought up those two points because I, I've encountered it and I haven't heard anyone talking about it though. That sense of where you have this momentary hesitation where you're with a group of people and then you know that you can lay out a ton of evidence-backed information, but you also know that while you're laying it out, at least half the people in that group are going to be thinking, oh shit, my friend has lost his mind. And yeah. and so you have to kind of make this ca calculus where ultimately you have this information, you have to share it. And that's how, how I kind of feel. And I've had people, I've lost people in my life because of this, but I've had other people um, come around a bit, not as clearly as you, you got, I changed my mind, but I've had people come around a bit and it's kind of, it's more than a little ironic that when I think of the left that I know and, and I've done talks and so on, or I've got, let's say I go to a talk years ago with Chomsky doing the talk. And one of the things I knew I was going to get was information I didn't know. And so I went there looking for information that I could then add to, to, to inform me. And now what's happening is the last, like you said, the last thing people want is information that they don't know. So they weaponize it and say, oh, it can't be good. That guest was on Rogan or Tucker Carlson said it. And they just weaponize who the, the, the messenger instead of the message. And I'm glad you brought that up because I just want people who are listening to this to know that if you've done your homework and you, you have this type of evidence-based information, it's pretty much your obligation to start sharing it and you know use your, use your discretion it's not a matter of picking fights but you can yeah. 
people do at the end of the day people hear more than we we give them credit for and there are people as you said right from the beginning of this conversation there are people inch by inch kind of working their way out of this madness and saying all right, I'm going to just put all of that behind me because I don't know what the hell just happened, but now I'm going back to trying to gather information and make up my own mind. And and that's that's all we can do. It's like yeah. you, 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 don't want and, tell, and you don't also, want to tell anybody what to think, but you want to yeah. give them more context. Yeah. And also, to be honest with yourself, it's like part of what's at play here is the politics of respectability. And it's like you got to be brave enough to like take a little hit on, you know, some you're going to lose respectability in the eyes of some people. But basically, you're going to lose respectability in the eyes of people who are totally bound up in, in you know, status-seeking bullshit pursuits. And exactly. one, one, so it's a combination of having a, you know, a, a bit of humility and bravery. Like, okay, so some people are going to think I'm crazy. Big deal. But also about having faith in people, you know, like that there's a lot of people out there who, you know, who are maybe not self-consciously, but just are constitutionally, intuitively they are committed to critical thinking. You know, they do want to know what's really going on. They are, they are capable of dealing with nuance and contradiction, but they happen to be operating in an environment where that's totally forbidden and they don't get exposed to enough of that. So, you know, if, if we can all like model it for ourselves and our friends and, you know, basically just push back and create a culture of critical thinking, free thinking, um, I, think there's, I think there's a lot of people who are, who are eager to join us. I, I can't think of a better note to end on. That That's exactly where I would hope that we can get people aiming towards. Checking out your article, reading reading, reading the uh, references in your article to learn even more, and then putting aside the politics of respectability, as you said, and getting out there and, and having faith in, in our fellow human beings that at some point they do want more information. They want to think critically. And if we could be even a tiny amount of a catalyst in that process, then, then that's something to be proud of. So thank, thank you for your, your the role you played and for making time. This is a great conversation and um, I would love to stay in touch and, and uh, you know, well, talk again. All right, let's do that. Thank you very much for having me on your show, and 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 uh, good luck with everything. Mike, Thank you very much. Okay, bye. Right. Bye. I'll be back with my story of the week right after this word from our sponsor. Hey, Mickey Z here with a few messages before we get back to the show. I'm asking you to become a paid subscriber to Post Woke. To do so, it's very simple. Just go to mickeyz.substack.com. The link is in the show notes. And there, for just $5 a month, less than 17 cents a day, you can support what I'm doing and get a steady flow of podcasts, articles, and other content, including perks that are available only to paid subscribers. So I thank you in advance for making that commitment. It really makes a difference. In addition, if you'll scroll through, scroll through the show notes, you'll see that I have a link in there for the project I do to help homeless women in New York City. Your support is most welcome. There's a link in there for a very cool post-woke podcast t-shirt to let people know what your favorite podcast is. And there's also a link in there for my NFT digital art photography. If you're interested in non-fungible tokens as a collectible, please click that link, check it out, and maybe maybe buy yourself a collectible work of art. So on that note, thank you again. And most importantly, please consider becoming a subscriber at mickeyz.substack.com. And now let's get back to the show.
this story took place a little over a decade ago, and I want to share it because so much of this episode could be um, taken as some type of um, hatred for the left or for the entire concept of activism. So just a quick side note, a critique of the left doesn't mean that you're throwing out all the issues that the left is associated with. And my critiques of activism, where I say air quotes, is that I'm, I am targeting and focusing on what passes for activism. But with all that in mind, I'm going to end with a short story of something positive from my hardcore activist days um, when I was involved with Occupy Wall Street. There used to be, in the year 2012, there was a monthly event called Occupy Ta Town Square. And the idea was that occupiers would pick a neighborhood, uh, a large park in each neighborhood, in each of the five boroughs of New York City. And they would connect with neighborhood people to tell them that we're going to do this event on a given Saturday or Sunday and ask if they wanted to be involved in any type of activist or cultural way. For example, there was one in the summer of 2012 in Jackson Heights, Queens, not far from where I live. And Jackson Heights is a very, very multicultural, but has a particularly large Latino population. And I remember distinctly at that Occupy Town Square, a neighborhood dance group requested that they could put on a traditional dance to show us, the visitors, what they're all about. So with all that in mind, it was late March 2012, and I was making my way to Fort Greene Park in Brooklyn to attend what was then the third edition of Occupy Town Square. Now, I have lived in New York City my entire life, but I had never been to Fort Greene Park before. So when I got off the subway at DeKalb Avenue, I opted to rely on the evidence of my senses and headed off in the direction of some trees. Now, if you don't live in New York City, um, a group of trees stands out. So, so I'm walking in that direction. And then when I noticed two members of the NYPD standing at the gate, I knew I had found the right place. So once I passed them, I still had no idea where the Occupy gathering could be within a park that was 30 acres big. So I stopped. I walked a little bit into the park and then I stopped. I got quiet and that's when I heard it. The unmistakable sound in the distance of drums. Now, if you know anything about Occupy Wall Street, everywhere they went, there was a drum circle. So like a human may have done hundreds or even thousands of years ago, I followed the drumbeat through unfamiliar terrain until I found my tribe. Later, as I left after a fun day of festivities and socializing, I passed several occupiers who were just making their way to the event. When they asked me for directions, I suggested, just listen for the drums. You see, when it's operating in an open-minded, egalitarian way, activism can be transformative. So I wish you success as you search for, or even better, attempt to create that kind of dynamic. But in the meantime, Keep your guard up.